Welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast where we talk about each book in the series in three parts and we feel all of our feelings about Persebeth. Uh, today we're talking about the end of Sea of Monsters and we have a lovely special guest, so stick around. All right, we're ready to get started. Um, your your usual two hosts are back as well, and our, our special mm-hmm. guest for this podcast is um is is my sister. Um, do you want to do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Um, I'm Nikki. I just graduated. Yeah, it's a young person. That's yeah. that's very <laughs> important for you out there to know is that we we believe in youth. We believe in diversity of experiences. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> this is. Yeah, this is our nod to the the Gen Z fans out there. Don't um don't kill us. Don't we, give up we, on we us. We understand you. We value your perspectives, <laughs> and we're also afraid of you. Um, <laughs> so so Nikki, what, what what was your intro to the Percy Jackson books and like Greek mythology in general? Greek mythology. We used to have this one Greek mythology book at home. Are you that, the yellow one? Yeah, Dolores. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this one book that I remember reading a lot. So that's what initially got me interested in Greek mythology. But I think it was mostly just like, I mean, everyone was reading it at the time. So I think I started reading in like, was it second grade? It sort of tracks like the the last book came out when I was in fourth grade. So you would have been in first grade. So the whole series would have just finished being released when you were like in second grade. I think I tried starting to read it in second grade. And then I probably didn't see it into completion. finished it in like fourth grade. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, the question that we've been asking every guest is how did how did you pronounce the name of the of the centaur mentor who is um, taking a bit of a leave of absence in the Sea of Monsters? No wrong answers. Chiron. Chiron. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's. I don't think we've actually had that answer yet. Yeah. Um, I'm not totally sure. My my answer was was pretty similar to that. I think that was the closest. Mm. Um, so so one of the other questions we ask everyone that you can opt to answer or not is whether or not you had. A particular godly parent you felt connected to or that you thought might have been yours i mean i want to say athena but i feel like that's pretty pretty <laughs> i feel like if you read the Dellars book as a kid you might be a child of athena <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that's yeah julia's the only other person who's brought up that book yeah so far no she Athenian. told a long story about yeah athena <laughs> um yes yeah, so, and Finally, like, is there anything else that you want to bring up about the books up until this mm. point? Any hot takes that you have? Give us some hot takes, uh, Nikki. That you want to share about about Luke, about I didn't think I Rachel Elizabeth Dare, maybe. Whoa, um, whoa, hold up. Um, no, she's not even here yet. Don't don't make me angry before I have to be angry. Oh Until my God, later. I, who's that I think? I was thinking of Nancy Boba Fett. Ooh, same. I energy. get them confused. That's damning. They're basically the same. <laughs> um, all right. Okay. In that case. We can we can just we can just move forward. Yeah, uh, you don't you don't have anything else. You don't you don't have like a particular character you most strongly associated with, or um, <laughs> I don't think so. Someone who irritated you more than everyone else. Mm. Luke, <laughs> <gasps> irritated or associated? I mean, I always thought Luke wasn't that bad. <laughs> okay, good. Snaps. Yeah, there, there's been some variation among the guests. I tend, I tend to I tend to gravitate towards the characters that are like introduced as like not conventional bad good. boys <laughs> nikki yeah. just finished up atla so we, we've been having some good conversations zuko. about about zuko yeah. about 
about the the trio. Um, but the but Fire Nikki, Nation. did you did you watch it for real and not on three times speed like Carter did? Two point five or something. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> this hurts my soul. <laughs> Sacrilege. We both had the same problem. We were like trying to watch it together and then like on the TV boring. and we just got so bored at one time speed. So we both independently were like, gotta speed it yeah. up. Okay, whatever. Moving on, moving on past the sacrilege, diving in, it's time. We, we left off having just escaped the sirens, having had a really intimate conversation about fatal flaws and about Annabeth's personal ambitions and having just arrived um, at the island of Polyphemus, the OG terrifying Cyclops. The island's beautiful. Nature is gorgeous. Because, you know, the place is there, of course, uh, creating all this um, idyllic beauty. But it's also immediately clear to us that it's dangerous. Um, we, we got this warning from Grover's dream, of course. But we also see these these flesh-eating sheep devour um, an animal as we're getting there. So we, we have an understanding, you know, that it's, you know, the stakes are high. It's dangerous. We have to worry about more than just the monster cyclops. There's also so many other things about the island that are out here waiting to kill us. And we also find out very quickly that um, Clarice is there. Clarice survived and she's ahead of them. It's literally Ah. like the amazing race. Even though like they're both after the same thing, it's just for some reason, like having Clarice also, you know, being the rightful person on the quest is making everything more urgent, even though they're on the same timeline. It's just making the stakes higher because Clarice is like acting like their enemy, even though she's not. Maybe that's an Aries thing. Yeah, because of the fact that like in this book, the subplot about Kronos is sort of, it's very, very sub-subplot. It's not, like, right mm-hmm. there par- running parallel, giving the book extra stakes. This, like, Clarice feud is giving us extra extra energy. And, yeah, when uh, Annabeth and Percy, they climb up the cliff, Annabeth is a better climber than Percy. Shout out to her upper body strength. That's really impressive as for a 12-year-old girl. <laughs> um, and when they get to the cave, they realize that Clarice is straight up just challenging Polyphemus <laughs> like a why this is the dumbest part like we know she's the daughter of Ares but this this is just next level she just runs in she's screaming we understand fully the frustration of seeing the boat because she is in here ruining everything for everyone and for what reason <laughs> she challenges them to direct combat and then also immediately proceeds to blow Grover's cover after like a minute of being in there Terrifying. Why? Literally why? This is almost comically and absurdly stupid. Yeah. When she just keeps correcting Grover in a wedding dress, obviously scheming to survive the monster cyclops. These are the things that make me think that Clarice is actually a criminal. This sequence is not is not her cutest look. Nor was the Confederate soldiers. As we said, this whole book what is not cute for Clarice. Soldiers? She's doing her best, though. I recognize <laughs> that she's under a lot of pressure. Like, I have to cut her some slack. Although she is complicit with her father, like, he is kind of... He's hard on her. Family dynamics are complicated. Yeah. Anyway, she's, yeah. she's being really dumb. <laughs> and she gro- she blows Grover's cover. And Polyphemus is like, oh, you know what? You got spunk, kid. How about I marry you instead of Grover? Now that I know he's a man and I couldn't possibly do that, that'd be dumb. So I'm going to... That was that was sarcasm. I, I don't want the internet to think I'm homophobic. Gender is a social construct. We were... Let's be very clear about this. Gender is a social construct. I don't know how many times I have to say that. Can't say it enough. Gender is not real. But they convince him to go and uh, pick mangoes for mango chutney. And he's like, what the hell is Chutney? Um, but that buys him some time. So Percy and Annabeth are stuck trying to get into the cave. Unfortunately, the giant rock is closed and they're just like, it would have been the perfect time for them to sneak in and break out Grover and Clarice and the fleece. But 
it's impossible. They cannot get through. So they're just kind of like hanging out and they're having to come up with a plan for when Polyphemus gets back. Fast forward and they sneak in underneath some sheep. Or well, Percy sneaks in underneath a sheep and Annabeth puts on the hat and takes on the legendary role of of nobody yes. from uh, Odysseus fame. Yes. Percy has a moment where she where he says like a prayer and he's like, you know what? He says to the gods, if this works out and we don't die, I'm going to tell Annabeth that she's a genius and the gods are going to hold me to it. I also just really like the fact that it's sort of Annabeth who is oh going God. on Odysseus, the Odysseus journey and sort of mirroring him throughout this book. And it's not necessarily Percy. Like she is the one who is gets tied up at Siren Bay and like she is the one who is being nobody like she yes. is taking on this role and stepping into the story that she knows is hers for taking and Percy's just kind of there and like doing his best to catch up as always <laughs> we, we we love a, a feminist reimagining of the canon yes <laughs> even though uh, Annabeth still isn't the main character still Percy Jackson and <laughs> whatever it's fine we'll take we'll, it we'll take it we'll we'll proceed um from here um yeah, we, we, we should probably also take a moment to shout out where um, Polyphemus gets commented on as being not too bright about the whole man-woman thing, which... Rolling my again, eyes. Just to reiterate... Gender is not gender's, real. Gender's not real. Who is bright about the whole man-woman thing? No one. Not not Polyphemus. And that, that about takes us to the battle. Because once they get inside, you know, Annabeth is successfully distracting Polyphemus for a little while. But while Percy goes in there, cuts off the chains from Grover and Clarice, and they're about to escape. We find out that Annabeth has been caught. Um, she's injured, and they need to then counterattack and sort of mad scramble their way out of there, which they do. They're running away. They cross the bridge, cut it off. They think that they've almost escaped, but they Psych. have Lithamus is right there behind them. Things are looking really bad for them. And then Percy really just, just pops off here. Percy, <laughs> almost out of nowhere... He he pulls a real protagonist vacillation where he instantly <laughs> um, and sort of inconsistently with the rest of what we know about his powers largely like becomes powerful enough to one on one take down Polyphemus. That's so funny. And has him at sword point. Yeah, ready ready to to take him out. Mm-hmm. Um, I- I've never heard the term protagonist vacillation before, but I think it's a really great way of describing this super unreliable like power set that he has that our protagonists often have. Like speaking of Avatar: The Last Airbender and we the were Avatar. We had a conversation about this earlier about how like <laughs> that's a pretty common theme of the protagonists. Their like strength being kind of inconsistent. Particularly, like we were talking about like the genre convention of protagonists marketed towards like teenage boys, boys. Yes, like have this ability. Yes, to, like. To, to just expect their powers to show up when they need it at, without any yeah. putting any of the work in. It almost like, the training. like it borders on like the shonen type of trope of like power friendship type energy where like, um, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Where like, it's sort of like, it's sort of alluded to that like Annabeth is in trouble and therefore like Percy. Oh. High gear. Yeah. Bam, bam, bam. Yeah. Defeats a Cyclops that is taller and more powerful than him. But. Yeah. The power of love. Aww. Yeah, I mean, it really very much directly mirrors the Avatar state in Avatar because Aang only is able to, like, control popping in and out of it when either, like, his life is in danger or the two people he cares about, Katara and Appa, their lives are in danger. Um, but yeah, this, this moment leads us to a very special internal monologue that Percy has in his own head, um, which is relevant to the conversation that we were just having in the last episode in the previous chapter about fatal flaws. So, Carter, if you want to take it away with a reading here. This is page 219, for those of you reading along at home. I had one. 
All I had to do was stab. One quick strike. Kill him, Clarice yelled. What are you waiting for? The Cyclops sounded so heartbroken, just like, like Tyson. He's a Cyclops, Grover warned. Don't trust him. I knew he was right. I knew Annabeth would have said the same thing. But Polyphemus sobbed, and for the first time it sank in that he was a son of Poseidon too. Like Tyson. Like me. How could I just kill him in cold blood? We only want the fleece, I told the monster. Will you agree to let us take it? No, Clarice shouted. Kill him! The monster sniffled. My beautiful fleece. Prize of my collection. Take it, cruel human. Take it and go in peace. I'm going to step back slowly, I told the monster. One false move. Polyphemus nodded like he understood. I stepped back, and fast as a cobra, Polyphemus smacked me back to the edge of the cliff. Foolish mortal, he bellowed, rising to his feet. Take my fleece. Ha! I eat you first. <laughs> classic, classic villain catchphrase. I eat you first. <laughs> yeah, so so this is a moment where we, there, there's like a number of things going on here. We see Percy refusing to kill Polyphemus, right? And this is, I would say, one of the first times we actually see someone not killing a monster. Coming up to someone who we've designated to be, you know, a creature of Tartarus, one of the primordial beings that represents the evil that recurs every generation, etc. And, and deciding to not you use lethal force and th- there are like a number of things going into that like one reading that we take into this is that we're complicating the idea of what it means to be a monster particularly mm-hmm. given that they're related right Pro- yeah. polyphemus is percy's brother in exactly the same way that tyson is percy's brother yes and that's it's like difficult for him and mm-hmm. it forces us to ourselves right, right try to complicate this idea of like what what it means to be a monster but of course there's more going on than just that Yes, exactly. When he he sees Tyson in his enemy and in this moment where the stakes truly cannot be higher, they're really all about to die, and his brain is like, pause, wait a second, hold on, is this nice? Is this kind? Am I being just? Am I being a good person if I kill this man who reminds me of my brother? Um, And it's great that he's asking these wonderful questions, but of course it's also putting Mm -hmm. other people's lives in danger is perhaps a flaw, and knowing what we know about this future fatal flaw reveal um, that comes later on in the books, like, this is great character development. We love to see it, Rick. We love to see that our protagonist has very strong morals. Like, he might not be able to build an entire city or have the confidence to yes. do so, but and he's we, a good we love person. That about him. It's a better fatal flaw for this story, yeah. Oh, the fatal flaw is like, Rick already alludes it to be like a good thing, right? It, Percy's. Like, eventually, that's because he like doesn't give up on like people and he like sees that out to the end. That's what. This is what he argues in that critical dialogue that we're going to get to six, three episodes from now with Athena. Where he says, like, this is not a bad thing. And Athena says, in moderation, you just yeah. gotta, you just need to watch yourself. You need to yeah. know about this. And it's everything in moderation. Careful. Yeah. And like with Annabeth, you know, like we do love that she she is a, a you know, a revolutionary who believes that she is capable of doing things. We just need to make sure that she doesn't, you know, take that too far and like forget that other people also know how to do things. Mm. Which which she she does. Which do she they does though? Do other people know how to do things? Do other people know how to do things? That's that's worth investigating. <laughs> I've not seen any evidence yet that anyone else besides Annabeth knows literally how to do anything. But you know, I will. I'll stay. I'll stay on the lookout for the that. The other in thing future. that I wanted to bring up at this moment is that Polyphemus betrays him, and this is right after we get this crucial dialogue from Grover and Clarice, who are both basically racist, we should say, with respect to Cyclops. Like, when they're telling him to kill Polyphemus, their reasoning is based on the fact that he's a Cyclops rather than that he is a legendary individual who also, you know, like, had all these battles with... Legendarily evil. Oedipus, and yeah, or... Uh, Oedipus, Odysseus, I keep doing that. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, legendarily evil. But... It's it's important for us, like, in, in this, basically what is, I would argue, like, an anti-racist allegory for children to recognize that, like, 
you know, like your anti-racism can't come from a place of believing that literally every person from your out group is good and like will take your side or be on yeah. your team, right? Like, and that was really important, I think, for me to see in this is that Polyphemus, like genuinely, like he's not a great person and he's never going to be on your side, but that doesn't make it okay for you to kill him or to like dismiss yeah. obviously other Cyclopses. Snaps for that. Thanks, yes. Rick. We love, we love allegorical anti-racist children's literature. Um, <laughs> right, because in this moment, after they get tricked again, the person who comes to save them is Tyson. Tyson, who is alive! Oh, Tyson, who never died. Shout yeah. out to Rainbow. No, I honestly didn't think he died. Maybe maybe it's just me and I'm really smart. <laughs> I thought I thought that it would be weird to kill him after only 10 chapters, but... It would be. It would be It would be some weird martyr stuff, but he's back. Yes, he is alive. Shout out to Rainbow <laughs> and the other hippocampi, the literal only non-colonial vessels that carry them through this book. Book, the Wait, only things carrying them on yes. the water that are not problematic. They deserve an award for that. Um, but when Tyson tries to come back, Polyphemus t- hits him with like a, you are betraying your kind. And Tyson's like, no, 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 you weren't raised right. Which I thought is interesting because technically they are raised like on the streets. They were both homeless. Yeah. This is like, this is, is something that we have to... Is supposed to be that level of loyalty? Like, do you... Are people do that level of loyalty if they're like bind in some manner? I don't know, like, it's weird, like, Polyphemus basically seems to be just invoking the, like, we're both Cyclopses level of it, which is, I don't know. But also, Polyphemus, crucially at this point, does not know that Percy is a son of Poseidon either. This is true. So there's also, like, the level of just, like, direct, like, parentage, we have the same dad, you should be on my side. I don't know, I would also argue that, like, Tyson, as a character, like, maybe it's because he's so young, but a lot of the times that he invokes these things about being raised right, and, like, later on, like, goes to bat pretty hard for Poseidon... He's a, like, it, there's like a degree to which, like, if you just took him at face value and wasn't like he is a child who's optimistic, like, you would read him as sort of an apologist for the terrible ways in which yeah. all of these people, like, should not be neglected by their parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, Even later on in this book, we're going to see Tyson gets a little bit of special treatment, honestly, from Poseidon, from his dad, in a way that, like, even the demi, several, several demigods have not had yeah. that same experience, which is worth mentioning because, of course, building the case yeah. for joining Luke's side as we see his demigod army yes. going. So, so after all of this, they, they catch up, they're escaping. Oh, they, they get the fleece to Annabeth? Or, mm-hmm. And by they, I mean Tyson, obviously, because Tyson's doing everything. He's <laughs> large and in charge. Um, <laughs> gets the fleece, throws it to Annabeth, who's like basically dying, and saves her with yeah, its, she's in its bad healing shape. nature magic. Um, and they're, they're, they're getting out of there, but Psyche Polyphemus is, is still kicking. He's Double back psych. to challenge them. And we get the showdown at the beach, Polyphemus versus Percy and Tyson. Iconic. This is where we get more of a deep investigation of, like, the Polyphemus versus Tyson part. Um, of, like, juxtaposing them against each other as two different Cyclopses who have just very different ideologies. And I think the interesting part of this for me was that, like, we basically read Polyphemus as not that different from, like, Annabeth sort of in this situation where he has only had bad experiences with humans. And therefore, and, and like, the way that- Hasn't Tyson only had bad experiences with humans? Yeah, that's, I don't know, like, so there, there are some moments where I read Tyson as a little bit too much of, like, a, you know, like, there's so much free will in a way that, to me, like, neglects the ways in which, obviously, like, if you were in Tyson's situation, like, you probably should logically hate humans, but he's very, you know, he, he, he's a loving person, he's very optimistic. It's a very nature. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's a very argument towards, like, the idea that people can go through difficult situations but still come out strong, like, you know how people yeah. use the, like, the analogy of, like, like, Asian people, like, you know, sometimes there's that thing. Like, model minority, you mean? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> wow. wow, we're back. Model minority, man. 
Did Nikki just shout out Tyson as the model minority of Cyclopses? <laughs> Bring it back. Like, <laughs> Literally shout out the Third World Liberation Front. We're, we're really doing things here on um, Seaweed Seaweed Podcast. Yeah. Rick really did not have in mind that uh, 14 years later after he wrote this, we would be comparing Tyson to the Asian model minority. <laughs> but like, we, we literally like get, get this moment where like, even though Tyson's speaking this way, Percy's language shifts, where he's no longer even referring to Polyphemus as a monster. And he's basically saying like, it, when, like, Polyphemus says this thing about how, like, Poseidon should strike down Percy because he's an enemy, Percy's response is not, like, psych, he likes me better, or, like, <laughs> I'm a demigod, I'm better than you, you're a monster son of Poseidon, which is basically what he said before about Tyson, right? Like, he's from the monster side of the family or something. His response is, I'm his son too, he won't play favorites. Where we get this framing of it as, like, neutral, basically saying, like, you know, like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to call you evil, I'm not going to call you worse than me, I'm just going to say, like, we, we're in competing situations right now. We're both sons of Poseidon. You know, we're, we we just like have different different values, different things we're trying to achieve, and we're yeah, we're we're just gonna have to fight on that level. Yeah, I found that very interesting. Anyway, you know, I do like how layered <laughs> and intense this like big final uh, sort fight of the boss is battle. at the yeah. this like yeah, it's almost the big final fight at the end of this book. It's super complex, but yeah, it seems like Team Avatar Team Mister <laughs> Jackson has made it off the beach. Um, they're about to escape on Queen Anne's revenge, and and then Clarice like. Why is she doing this? Is like, take that, Team Percy. You thought you would marry me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get it. I get it. It was very triggering for her. So Clarice is feeling feeling it right now, but unfortunately, it's putting everyone else in danger, and Polyphemus throws a big old rock. The whole ship goes down. There's a sinkhole. They're not going to make it out, but Tyson and Percy can talk to each other underwater, aw, because they're Aww, both brothers, sons, sons of Poseidon, and they call the hippocampi to save the day yet again. Literally, I, are the hippocampi not the the <laughs> our number one favorites yes, out of this book? Like I, of the sea of monsters. <laughs> I mean, obviously Tyson has done nothing wrong, but like the hippocampi, like they're reliable. They've really shown up every time. Mm, powerful. Wow. I just also want to shout out the like different parallels that we give each different character. Like between all of the heroes in this book, we're getting a composite of Odysseus through all of them that I found really interesting. Like Odysseus also famously does the thing where like he yells like, arrogantly at Polyphemus as they're sailing away because his fatal flaw is also hubris. And Polyphemus also destroys his shit because he's... <laughs> Odysseus was being stupid and should not have done that to a Cyclops. He just blinded. Literally just got away. Um, <laughs> and also the thing of, like, blinding him again when Percy, like... Yeah, they're all fulfilling different parts of the Odyssey, which is really cute. Referencing the Teamwork. Canon. Yeah. Teamwork. Yeah, so they escape on the Hippocampi. Um, Percy lays the fleece on Annabeth to help heal her. She falls asleep as they make their way to Miami. But uh, they all have to swim to shore because the Hippocampi are way too majestic <laughs> for the disgusting polluted ocean. And when they get to shore, they realize that it has been 10 days. How can that be? We have to get <laughs> this back tonight. Which is like, honestly, it's okay. It's fine. Why it's not? Required <laughs> to give us your time crunches. <laughs> yeah, like there are really only so many pages. We've got to wrap this thing up. Um, when they get back on land, the mist obscures the fleece so it becomes a letter jacket with a golden omega on it. I guess omega, pan, all, that's the association there. But why is it a Leatherman jacket? You pointed this out in our notes, Carter. This is such a rare moment where I feel like there was actually like a better yeah. quirky modernization, modern choice that Rick could have used for the transformation of this object. Like, why is it not like a, a hiking it, like, Patagonia vest? It resembles a fur more if it's a Patagonia. Right. You're like, you know, like like a fur makes more sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I disassociate nature 
magic with with athleticism. Maybe that's just made out. That's fine. No, I completely agree. <laughs> yes. And then they're like, okay, how do we get the fleece back? What are we going to do? Clarice is like, hi, um, I can just go back and fly it there. And to Percy and Adamant and Grover, they're like, no, like, how can we trust you? We can't do it. Like, everyone needs to calm down. This has been Clarice's quest since the beginning. It's literally her quest. And all that she has to do is wear a jacket on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, can yeah. she do it? Yes. I just feel like Clarice has been through a lot today. They just need to let her have this. Eventually they do. We also, like, part of the reason why we get this is because we she finally tells us the prophecy oh yes and Mm -hmm. like after listening to the prophecy they're like oh this makes sense she needs to go go back with fleece like the key the key lines from this are basically that like we get that she's gonna find what they're looking for which you know has already happened that worked out um sailing ship uh with warriors of bone that's done did that despair of her life into wind and stone trapped in polyphus's cave but the key line that we're looking at here is fail with without friends and fly home alone and after hearing that, Percy and Annabeth are like, all right, that's fine. Just take it by yourself. We have money for one plane ticket. Right. Annabeth here is also, for some reason, calls Percy insane for trusting Clarice. Like, I don't know, <laughs> this is some woman-on-woman hate, some internalized misogyny here. But it's also like a cute little sa- scene where, like, Percy to himself is like, you know, like, maybe maybe I impressed her. Maybe, <laughs> ma- maybe, maybe I surprised Annabeth. And that's, like, really hard to do because she's, like, so smart. Aw, she is. She's Aww. the smartest person I've ever known. Um, Cute stuff. <laughs> yes. And just as Clarice leaves, it's bum bum. Hey, cut. Guess who's back? He's back. He is back. It's Luke. Princess Andromeda ambush. It's a Luke ambush. And this is a, a really interesting moment between Luke and Team Avatar because it's the first time it seems like Luke is not 10 steps ahead of them. He needs to get the fleece for them, but Clarice is already gone. Um, and Luke is like perhaps slipping. He is described as being unhinged. Um, and Percy <laughs> has the clever idea to get Luke to confess over Iris' message so Chiron can come back to camp. And in this speech, this like evil speech that Luke is giving, he loves those. He drops that like Cronus was right. Percy is unreliable and must be replaced, which, you know, per the great prophecy that we don't exactly know yet, is somehow they're going to get another big three kid to preserve or raise Olympus. Like, what? Yeah. Uh-oh. How? What's going to happen? Um, and Luke and Percy have a little sword fight, and Luke is like, you are so out of practice. This, this, shout out again to the, to the whole notion of the unreliable skill set of the male protagonist like literally percy just destroyed this legendary cyclops that an entire odysseus basically entire army could not defeat but luke luke is too much for him luke right how like harry can disarm voldemort but he can't duel draco in class (laughs) yes literally there's even a pool there like this isn't a water magic is out of the question thing like percy defeats polyphemus on the top of a mountain and can't beat luke in a pool Make it make sense. Literally, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did need it to be difficult for Percy because it's time to bring in Chiron and the party ponies because we learned earlier on um, that Chiron is in Miami with his cousins and now we are in Miami too, which is like, whoa, full circle, <laughs> writing. We want. I, I want to take a moment here to like address the idea that we find out later that party ponies come from everywhere in the country, but at this point, we're thinking all of the centaurs who are basically like disaster people. <laughs> they're they're partiers. They have no like coherent organization or values to our knowledge. They're all in Miami, which is like really I don't know. It like it, there's like a level in which maybe it's just invoking this basic like frat boy. This is where people go for spring break type of energy. But also, I I want to raise the possibility that maybe this is a little racially charged. That this famously like majority and minority city is associated with certain stereotypes. 
that are maybe not the best about certain certain communities. Mm. Anyhow. No, definitely. I think it's very much worth bringing up, especially if what Rick meant was maybe more of this fratty spring break energy, but the way that we read it and how it might be charged now yes. in 2020 is possibly different. Um, and we do hear later on our, that the party ponies come from all across the country, including Hawaii, Chihu. But Rick also takes a moment here to describe like the beautifully different colored names <laughs> of the horses and like the brilliant Palomino, like listening in the sun. And I just, I don't know what to make it. Like, Anyway, um, Kyron ends up saying today is somewhat of a draw, but at least mm -hmm. we are all safe. And the kids have this like debriefing, very, very Dumbledorean moment where yes. they are finally now reunited with their spiritual guide and they unpack and go over literally everything yes. that just happened. Literally debrief everything and explain all missing information from the book so far. This is something that like, shout out to like, literally, this is gonna make no sense to anyone who is not listening to the podcast in real time. But like, shout out again to Atla for like, not being like, I think the only series that I know of that is like young adult fantasy that does not literally rely so heavily on the crutch of like mysterious old mentor who can explain everything at the end. Oh, wait, <laughs> oh, but they do have they do have Uncle Iroh and they do I have, guess. Rank has Roku. Roku's sort of like in and out though. And like Iroh, uh, like does Iroh know? Well, Iroh anyway. sort of fulfills that role for Zuko when he like explains all of his heritage at the end of the seasons. Yeah, that's true. I I was like Zuko's Dumbledore maybe, but like he's yeah, like Yeah, but yeah. but you are right. They, they mostly do it on their own. Also, we love mentorship though. Yeah, and no, where would we be without the English teachers in our lives who helped us unpack everything <laughs> on a daily basis? Um, Luke also mentions during the fight that he was intended on giving them the fleece back when he was done with it, when he was done with using it because he does he doesn't want to kill Talia's tree forever. And Kyron has some ideas about what that means. Like, obviously, they are using the fleece to resurrect Kronos's body. Bad news. But that Luke still has remorse. Maybe it's just that Luke also has remorse, but it's also like a little bit of, you know, foreshadowing for, for what's to come. Like, Ky like Kyron and Percy both sort of listen to this and they're like, there's a level in which they like actually believe him. And they're like, that's weird. Why? Why would... And we find out why. Yes. Um, they chat a bit about the great prophecy. Kyron tells them not to worry about it too much still. Don't worry about it, Percy. Like, we, we don't know still really what's going to happen. And he gives this beautiful sort of speech to them, to the kids, um, which in past readings I've really glazed over, but this time around it really stuck with us. Yeah, this is one of my favorite pieces of writing in the series. Like, oh, chills. So powerful. Yeah, it's really important how early on in the series the speech comes in um, as well, because it, it sets the tone, it tells us why we're doing this, why the gods can't interfere, and why uh, what it is that is worth fighting for. So this is on page 252. Celestial Bronze Percy, an immortal weapon. What would happen if you shot this at a human? Nothing, I said, it would pass right through. That's right, he said. Humans don't exist on the same level as the immortals. You can't even be hurt by our weapons. But you, Percy, you are part god, part human. You live in both worlds. You can be harmed by both, and you can affect both. That's what makes heroes so special. You carry the hopes of humanity into the realm of the eternal. Monsters never die. They are reborn from the chaos and barbarism that is always bubbling underneath civilization, the very stuff that makes Kronos stronger. They must be defeated again and again, kept at bay. Heroes embody that struggle. You fight the battles humanity must win every generation in order to stay human. Do you understand? I... I don't know. You must try, Percy, because whether or not you are the child of this prophecy, Kronos thinks you might be, and after today he will de finally despair of turning you to his side. That is the only reason he hasn't killed you yet, you know. As soon as he's sure he can't use you, he will destroy you. Wow. Chills. Chills. Wow. 
there, there's so many resonances that we could talk about here. We can we can mention um, Egyptian mythology. Shout out to also Rick Riordan there, and like that being fundamentally framed similarly, like as this struggle between like order and chaos that is eternal and is about like a balance that has to be struck every time with humans on the side of order. I I linked in like our notes for this podcast. I don't know if anyone is interested in this, but it's like a quote from Irene Natividad, former director of I think the Women's National Political Project or something like that. That might be wrong. But like um, this like clip of someone talking about how like there's no like there's no real such thing as rights. They're all tenuous. They depend on generational struggles. They depend on memory. They They depend on like institutional power. And that, that's sort of the energy we're getting at here. This, this idea that, like, th- th- this is, like, I feel like one of the most universalizable parts of the books. Where, like, we're, we're supposed to read this and think, like, this is this is us. We're kids reading this. And, like, we, like, even though our parents, like, did all this stuff, and even though there are these big, giant institutions that we can't really touch, like, or, you know, people haven't been able to change very successfully in the past, like, we, we're meant to change them. And, like, they're, like, there are struggles that we are going to have to, like, go through, even though people have been struggling this way for, like, generations and generations in the past. Yeah, honestly, it it like it gives me goosebumps and it makes me want to cry thinking about how Rick put this in a book what we were reading when we were like less than 12 years old <laughs> subconsciously or like not so subconsciously telling us that it's up to us to define what we need and then to go and get it. Like nothing is guaranteed. We are mm-hmm. constantly having to push back against evil and chaos that is never going to go away and all we can do is continue mm-hmm. to fight. Like Uncle Rick deserves the Isles of the Bless just for telling a bunch of children. Yes. This. Truly that. Gen Z, any 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 further notes? <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like that's my same take on the, the speech. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like your generation will fix everything, Nikki? It's literally it's like post millennials. Like millennials have already like it's almost already too late for millennials to fix climate change. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, definitely too late. We're we're all doomed, guaranteed. Ah, uh, <laughs> anyhow. Yeah, I I also think. I mean, we keep shouting out this mysterious feature episode where we'll do a deep dive on diversity, inclusion, and race in the books. But um, I do want to mention that this this notion that the Half-Bloods occupy two different worlds and are therefore capable of bringing those worlds together, the mortals and the gods, this is something that we see over and over again in biracial and multiracial mm-hmm. literature, like protagonists who can unite two different cultures. Um, shout out to Frozen 2 for giving us our first biracial princesses. Um, <laughs> I, I think this resonates with a lot of kids in this way, in the same way that, that like the Avatar is the bridge between the spirit and the physical world even though he's not specifically like a mixed race character it is it's how we identify and see ourselves in these kinds of books and it makes my heart smile um and also like this is so much to take on as 12 year olds so i'm really glad that we are rereading these books as young adults and reminding (laughs) ourselves that all of this is our responsibility and that we have a lot of work to do yes and then we're back at camp (laughs) yeehaw we we, we we got a fun reminder that Kronos is Kyron's dad, for those of you who forgot that little tidbit from your mythology readings. Um, <laughs> Double-checked out layers. Um, but yeah, the fleece is... Clarice got there. She she put the fleece there. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's it's done. It's fixed. The, Yay. The tree's healing up. The end. All is well. We're, we're really happy. We're, we're going to basically like dash through some loose ends, I think, now. Yeah. Okay, wrapping everything up, um, Hermes comes to visit. He says he's grateful. He says Poseidon is grateful, too, but that obviously the direct interference would only cause more problems. Percy's like, mm, well, okay, I'm still kind of sad. Where's my dad? It's an interesting perspective for us to bring in where, like, we, we see, like, Hermes, it, it, like, allows us to see Hermes I, and, like, Poseidon to a lesser extent as, like, a sympathetic parent who, like, does care about their kids but is fundamentally maybe misguided about 
how to approach that. Her Hermes, um, because he's a messenger god, um, gives Percy this stupid message. It's just like a letter from Poseidon. Percy is so hyped to receive this, and it literally just says, brace yourself. Like, <laughs> what? Poseidon? <laughs> What? How Yikes. about you brace yourself? Like, this, only, this is so dumb, so irritating, so vague. Why even say this? Literally, why send it? Why literally go to all of the trouble of getting Hermes, a fellow god, to this send is not this worth it. two-word note? So disrespectful. You should have texted him. Yeah, literally. <laughs> like, demigods don't have phones, but still. And then uh, Chiron decides we're going to continue on with the chariot races. The scene is really cute. In that, like, there are, like, a few, like, iconic things. Percy and Annabeth, like, trade roles in the middle of the race. Like, they, like... In the beginning, I think Percy's driving, and then they switch over so that Annabeth can drive so they can use different weapons. That, I don't know about anyone else. For me, that's iconography. That's S-tier companionship. And oh, yeah. There. Absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, after everything that they've been through, we said like they have this unsep- inseparable bond now after everything, all the vulnerability, all the adventuring in the Sea of Monsters. And then we see it play out here in the incredible partnership that they've formed. That's excellence. It's so beautiful. The communication, the trust. We also get um, uh, a, a dialogue between Percy and Tyson that is sort of like the encapsulation of their, like, it's, I feel like basically it's supposed to, like, resolve the relationship for us, where, like, Percy and Tyson have basically a moment where Tyson's like, you know, like, I was resentful for a while, but, like, I'm not resentful anymore because, Percy, you were the answer to my prayers. You, like, fixed all of my problems. You were sent to help me, which is beautiful and, like, such a cute way to, like, tie up this book of developing their sibling relationship but also like i was was having to pause and be like yikes wow but tyson truly endured so much it's not okay that percy is supposed to solve all this for them poseidon was not a sufficiently good parent but also like we should probably take a moment to to just remind ourselves that like whenever we whenever we indict the gods truly what we're indicting is western civilization and specifically america in this incarnation because like for all we see of poseidon like suffering by himself on the trees because poseidon was not a good parent we also see of course you know this is not a surprise but the abject failures of america as a country to deal with issues of equity particularly of child poverty like child homelessness outstrips adult homelessness by so mm-hmm. much child poverty and child hunger outstrip adult hunger in this country it's just yes go on reminder to ourselves let them know yes lar- lar- large-scale changes are necessary etc. child poverty is a choice etc anyway um yes uh, some more odds and ends um they uh, percy and grover decide to keep the empathy link um he talks to his mom and they decide that he's going to go back to school this year they're going to figure out how to make it work again and then tyson announces that he's going to have like a sweet he's going to have an internship at poseidon's palace he's going to work in the forges percy this time he's not even jealous he's just really happy for his brother and he's sad that he's not going to get to see him during the school year but that means that the original trio is back together percy grover and annabeth it's beautiful. That night, Percy has some weird dreams, um, and he hears his father's voice saying, brace yourself. And then there's a knock on the door. Gasp. You thought this was over. I, you, oh. you thought, we, we all thought, we all thought this was over. <laughs> and yet, and yet. Something oh, real exciting about to happen. cliffhanger to end all iconic cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. I think we should read it. I, I, we're, I'm, we're just gonna, we're not gonna read the whole thing. We're just gonna do some scattered quotes here Let's to get, it. to get the idea of it. Annabeth on the hill. She, she's lying there, just lying there. Curse the Titan Lord. He's tricked us again, given himself another chance to control the prophecy. The fleece did its work too well. What? What's happening, guys? What? 
Literally, what's happening? Oh my god, is Annabeth okay? What is- what is Garen talking about? Another chance to control the prophecy! It healed the tree, and the poison was not the only thing it purged! She just- Just suddenly, there. Short black punk hair, punk goth clothes. Not a camper, but he's seen her before. What is going on? Is it time for a reading? Should we do the reading now? Literally, yes, we have to. No one moved, not even Chiron. They were all too stunned. Then the girl took a shaky breath. She coughed and opened her eyes. Her irises were startlingly blue, electric blue. The girl stared at me in bewilderment, shivering and wild-eyed. Who? I'm Percy, I said. You're safe now. Strangest dream. It's okay. Dying. No, I assured her. You're okay. What's your name? That's when I knew. Even before she said it. The girl's blue eyes stared into mine and I understood what the Golden Fleece quest had been about. The poisoning of the tree, everything. Kronos had done it to bring another chess piece into play. Another chance to control the prophecy. Even Kyra and Annabeth and Grover, who should have been celebrating this moment, were too shocked, thinking about what it might mean for the future. As I was holding someone who was destined to be my best friend, or possibly my worst enemy. I am Talia, the girl said. Daughter of Zeus. Oh. oh my god. Oh my, oh my god. god. Finally she's back. Our bicon is back. That's a lot. She's here. She's ready the to us into the gayest back. book in the series. She's here. She's queer. Thank she's god. Ready. <laughs> I don't care if none of the characters were out in Titan's Curse or are ever out. It's just they're iconic. Everyone can agree. This is the iconic. best book. Iconography. Literally, even the straights will chime in and say, this is the best book of the series. Everyone's favorite. Nikki, what's your favorite book in the series? Yeah, Titan's Curse. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to circle back really quickly, just for those of you keeping track at home on the blue eye comment. 14% of the Greek population has blue or green eyes. That's between both eye colors, 14%. It's rare. There's only one mutation that causes blue eyes. <laughs> yes, Carter knows these things. Carter yes. studies science. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> We should probably, I also, I'm also going to just really quickly, we're going to go into this again in later detail, but like, it never says in the mythology, it's not canon that Zeus has blue eyes. That's, that's mm-hmm. neoclassicism. Yep. Creating racist beliefs for us about Greek classical structures that we now hear in alt-right commentators who look towards this as the cradle of Western civilization in a way that it is not and is ahistorical. Anyway, Whew. we'll be back <laughs> on that. <laughs> I thank God I know smart people. Um, <laughs> I learn every day. Yes. Yeah, so you know what? Guess what, Nikki? It's question time. I hope you're excited. Nervous. <laughs> question number one: Do you believe Persephone is the greatest love story ever told? Uh, yeah. In some way. <laughs> <laughs> flush it out. Flush it out. <laughs> like, I think they're pretty cute, but I don't know. They always. There's no sexual tension between us. <laughs> I never felt that. They're pretty. They they're are pretty, literally 13. They seem pretty friendly. Oh my god. Oh my wow. God. Wow. No. I felt bodied by that. Jesus. Oh my god. <laughs> but, but like, okay, but like, I don't know. This They seem more like they should be like a. Like just like a normal team. Really? That's so interesting. They give you more like Sherlock Watson type energy. Yeah, yeah. Really? I mean, that's, I can agree with that at this point in the book. Like, they just had this adventure together. Interesting. So that reads differently to you then. Yeah. Well, so I guess the necessary follow-up question. Plus, Annabeth doesn't really seem like straight. Oh. <laughs> Got him. Literally, I wish this I, is wish true. I this could is yell that over this microphone. For. Freaking oh my God. Got him. 
thank God you said this, Nikki. I, I was literally I need just so badly. I'm sure someone has definitely written for us the AU in which it's just Annabeth and the Hunters. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> I, I was literally just oh talking god. about this with some former and future guests on the podcast that like straight up Annabeth is queer. She is definitionally pansexual, bisexual. She but she doesn't label it. Like she's not putting labels on herself. She's far <laughs> too focused on her career at this point. At this moment she is so focused on her career. You're so Plus right. she's got all this trauma surrounding Luke that she's trying to work out. She's yeah. unpacking. Oh, that's true. She's not ready to look at her feelings with Percy yet. I feel like a necessary follow-up question to this then as well is like there's so many. Like, there's so many different directions to take this. Like, do you feel like there's a greater couple, like, in the series or, like, outside well, the series that like you would point it to? It was always clear that Annabeth liked Luke more than she liked Percy. Oh, I wow. mean, in the beginning, I, I'll, I'll give you that. I feel, do, do you don't feel like that changes later, as we progress through this? Like. What, what about the, what about Siren Bay? What no. about. <laughs> you know, I, I need to stop. I need to control myself. <laughs> it's fine. People are going to have different opinions. So, so. so so you, but you wouldn't rather see Annabeth with Luke, I'm assuming. No, but like, there's definitely a stronger like romantic connection between them. Mm. That's really interesting. You see, I believe that the the Annabeth's past with Luke is part of what makes the epic romance of Percibeth yeah. so tangible yeah. and beautiful. I agree. Percy like can't be the first one. She has to have like a, a like a weird pseudo ex type relationship Ooh. as a way of like grounding it in terms of like narrative arc you know also luke is like fully seven years older than her oh yes we should oh, not ignore yeah. that even though we have been luke oh. is like college age and annabeth is 13 i at always this point. thought luke <laughs> is their age i mean I no guess they, that's they, why they, like that's they why do talk about so much he's older. he's older so yeah. he's like he's mature he's an adult wait is the this. same age as luke Tolly is closer to Luke's age, but then they do the, they pull this like trick with the tree oh, where she pops yeah. out like 15 years old Wait, you didn't answer the second part of the question. Is there, like, a greater love story, like, outside of this, then? Like, like, is there another love story that you think we should be investigating? Anything. Outside of the genre, outside of the canon, whatever you want. We're open to anything. I'm not gonna lie, like, when when this is post... Most of my couples that I would mention, though, are from, like... That's fine. It's fine. Go off. Yes, let us know. (laughs) Gone and Kira. Gone and Kira! Oh, she's really showing us all up on here. We we talked a big game about queer representation, yet here we are getting upstage. Gone and Kiroa. <laughs> they're they're two gay anime. children. They're literally not even canon gay, though, are they? Uh, no, no, that's a separate one. See, no. when we talked about this earlier, I mentioned um, Toya and Yukito as like my like no. alt OTP. I think I think um, Gone and Kiroa read it. Like towards the end, Kiroa literally like sacrifices himself to like. Toya gives up his magic for Yukito. Nikki, but what are you talking give about? Up his life. Oh. oh my god, that's not a healthy model for a relationship. Gen Z said. Nikki, can you give us the name for layman? Oh, it's Hunter home? x Hunter. Yes. They're like also fully children. Not by, not, no, by the end. not by the end. So is there a, is there better sexual tension between Gon and Kiroa and Nikki? Yes. <laughs> oh, wow, this is so powerful. All right, last question. Should we really should we keep on doing all this just to save Western civilization? Oh, like, should they keep trying to save Western civilization? Should we yeah, risk our they, lives, should, should they, the lives of others, they, should they risk their lives civilians? This isn't even like a binary, like, should they pick Luke, right? This is just like, in general, like, they're putting in labor for this. And is that, is that justified? Yeah. What? Oh, oh God. You mean that they should just let so Kronos, many takes. You mean they Whoa. should just let Kronos, like, kill everyone? <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow, we are getting so many hot takes right now. Wait, wait, what? Literally no one is else has answered this way on either question. I'm so glad. We need different opinions. <laughs> oh my god, wait, so, so your take is that like because the alternative is, so this is like a vote for Biden type take, like your, your take is like because the alternative is Kronos wins anarchy, that we need to uphold the like current structures and it's worth it to save Western civilization as it exists. Yeah. I mean, they can just save Western civilization, like, or, like, change the structures of it after stopping Kronos. So, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Follow-up question. So, so this, again, this is such a different answer. So, 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 like, your take on this is that, like, I feel like there's a separation for me between, like, let's support Kronos and, like, the other take, which is basically saying, like, we're not gonna go out of our way, like, we're not gonna wa- wage this war for them type of energy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, saying, like, we will, like, we'll find another revolutionary or, like, we'll, like... Like, we're going to come to the negotiating table, like, ahead of time. To, or, like, you know, like, like alternate answers to the question of, like, how should they be supporting the gods? Like, do you, like, do you feel like their approach is, like, the correct approach? Or, like... I mean, I don't think that there are any other really, like, strong options. Wow. No, she's just realistic. She wow. knows realistically, like, the off. path that we need to take in order to get the reformation that we need. Yeah, that's that's pragmatism. That's, that's systems <laughs> thinking. That's... I mean, I feel like that's not that different from what other guests have said, actually. Like, I think we've been pretty on the same page of, like, don't pay Kronos, but, like, yeah. Obviously change things. Yeah, like, none of our guests are going to say, yeah. oh, everything is fine. It's just, it is interesting that Nikki did air yeah. on the side of, like, yes, like, it is worth it. Also, for the record, we are all voting for Biden. Also, <laughs> yeah. for the record, we're all voting for Biden. Yes, we cannot have the internet thinking otherwise. That is not that is not what we, we're sitting out here None to None of do us are chance the rapper the fool out here, like, running down the hill after questioning whether or not we're going to vote for Biden. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you would like to drop, Nikki? Any more hot takes while we're here? You've been, you've been really firing them out. Yeah, you've a lot of hot takes. Are there any more that you're going to... I don't with? think I have any other hot takes. Because those are both so spicy. I think I, I've been run dry. That is, that is okay. You did exceptionally well. You were wonderful. Thank you so much for being here, Nikki, even though you were um, essentially forced to be. <laughs> well, it was fun. All right. Well, we already said this, but stay tuned for the next book. It's going to be Titan's Curse. Absolutely iconic. Iconic. And uh, before we get into that, I believe we're going to be dropping a super special episode about everybody's least favorite films in cinematic yes. history. So stay tuned for that. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> Woo. All right. Bye.